Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We're doing something a little bit different today. I am interviewing my law partner, John Simon. Hello, John. Hello. Hello, everybody. Typically, those who listen to Hills in the Courtroom know that the ladies and I talk about different aspects of practicing law and life. And those of you that listen to John's podcast, The Jury Is Out, learn a lot of basically how to practice law from a master. So today, we want to do a little bit of a crossover. We typically don't interview on Hills in the Courtroom, but I couldn't think of a better person to have an inaugural interview with than John. We are starting our 20th year of practice together. Yes. I started here in the summer of 2002, pregnant with my first son, Connor, who just graduated from high school. And Mary, your daughter, Mary, that the Heels in the courtroom listeners know very well, was still in grade school. And of course, we all know she's due to have her first child this summer. So suffice it to say, 20 years has covered a lot of ground for us, John. (laughs) It has. It's amazing. I mean, it's just been a terrific, terrific ride and experience working with you, Amy. And I mean, it is. The 20 years just flew by. I feel the same way. One of the things we talk about a lot on the Heels in the Courtroom, especially for younger women and men for that matter, is finding a mentor and finding a sponsor. And a sponsor is someone who isn't just someone that you have lunch with occasionally that can give you some advice, but a sponsor is someone who really cares about your development in the practice and spends a lot of time assisting you with that and teaching you those things. And you are that for me. My sponsor, my mentor have been and continue to be. And I don't spend enough time thanking you for that. So I would not want to start this episode without being certain that you know how thankful I am for all of the time and energy and advice that you've given me over the last 20 years. Amy, it's wonderful for you to say that. And I will tell you, I've learned just as much from you, I guarantee you, as you've learned from me. You know, part of it is I've made so many mistakes. Almost everything I've learned is either from making a mistake where I learned on my own the hard way or watching other people that actually know what they're doing. And so almost everything fits into those two categories. And I think that's why I'm a good mentor because I have made plenty of mistakes and it's real easy for me. You know, I have a desire to make sure that the lawyers here and everywhere else do not make the same mistakes that I made. I have to say, I think that's a little bit unique. Not so much the mistakes. I think we all make those mistakes, but being willing to share your mistakes so that other people don't make those same mistakes. Unfortunately, I do think that might be a little unique and I've always appreciated that. One of the things that I wanted to cover today is about being a successful attorney. We use that term a lot. I imagine everybody wants to be a successful attorney. What does it mean to you to be a success? You know, I don't think it means getting big verdicts, making a lot of money. The answer to that question is the same answer to the question, what does it mean to be a successful person? I think it's all about how you treat people, that you're respectful, not not just being respectful. I mean, you need to do that, but, you know, doing things to help others, going out of your way to help somebody who needs a hand, going out of your way to show someone how to do something, you know, sharing pleadings with other attorneys, even attorneys not in the office. I've been that way my whole career, and it's really come back tenfold. It really has. I mean, I've made so many wonderful friends and great relationships And it just, most of it all 
developed out of habit of uh, helping, just lending a hand, giving people advice. Well, sometimes they don't ask for it. You give it to them anyway. But the important thing is, you know, who you are and how you live your life. At the end of my career, of my legal career, I would much rather be remembered if somebody's thinking about me when I'm long gone to say he was a good lawyer and a really great person or a great guy. And I think that that really says it all. And if you're nice to people and you help people and you do all of those, the things that you're supposed to be doing, you couldn't do anything better for the advancement of your career. I'd say be, be a good, decent, honest person and help others every chance you get. And that's the way you're going to make the most relationships and develop the most business also. I can remember early on in my practice here really getting mad about something, something a client did or an opposing counsel did or even a judge. And I'd come storming into your office and just be all upset about it. And you would always unfailingly listen. You would listen to me, get it out of my system. And then I would say something like, what should I do? Or, or here's what I'm thinking about. And you would always say the same thing, which is, Amy, it's okay. Let's see what we can do to figure it out. Don't send that email. Don't make that phone call. It's not worth it. And you were always right. And I'm wondering, did you learn that the hard way? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or is it yes. always the way no, that you have no, been? It's, it's, you know, it was a combination of the same thing that happened to you. I, I was lucky, very, very lucky to work with some great lawyers when I was very young and just starting out. One of them is George Fitzsimmons, who you know, and, and it was the same thing. I would go into George's office all the time. Rarely was it a, something good. It was always a problem or an issue. And George would do the same thing. He'd calm me down. He'd, he'd usually start talking about something else, oh, you know, yeah. and get a distraction. I mean, if you respond to bad stuff with more, you know, anger, it just it escalates. It eats up your time. It just puts you in a bad mood all the time. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And it's harder to do, I think, in our profession because it's inherent in what we do. You know, we're battling, we're arguing about things. We're both on different sides of issues. You have an opponent whose job is to prevent you from being able to do what you want to do in the case. It's not like you're building a house and you have 20 people there helping you. It's like you're building a house and there are 20 people there trying to prevent you from building that house. It messes with your head. I kind of compare it to giving somebody space in your brain somebody's aggravating you or fighting with you. And, you know, fortunately, the vast majority of attorneys that I deal with, and I think that you do too, are not like that. It's only right. a handful, and you know who those, those attorneys are. And, you know, you're better off just not thinking too much about them and moving on. If it affects your case, you know, obviously you got to do what you need to do to, to advance your case and protect your client. But anything beyond that is just really a waste of your energy and time. And there are times that we've all been in where we are frustrated and as much as we can turn the other cheek, so to speak, it's still hard to do. We've made a real stressful career choice. And as much as you've learned and helped me learn, the best thing to do is take a moment, make a long-term decision instead of a short-term reaction. But that can build up and that can affect you. What kind of things do you do to reduce your stress or just to let go of a hard day. I think one of the things is to put things in perspective. Usually the things that we get most angry about or spend a lot of time fighting with somebody aren't important in the case. And overall, you know, in the whole grand scheme of things, time passes by and you look at what you were upset about and what you were upset about wasn't even worth getting upset about. It is unbelievably important and helpful to have somebody a phone call away, 
more importantly, down the hall, the office next to you, somebody that you can just go in, and this happens here all the time. You know, somebody will get back from a motion, a hearing, a deposition, and they'll come into your office or my office, and it just lets them, you know, vent, talk about here's here's what happened, and that way you're not just holding it in, you're actually telling somebody, but you're not lashing out at the person who it's directed towards. Yeah. What kind of things do you like to do for fun? Grandkids now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've got uh, four grandchildren and one on the way. Yes, a brand new grandbaby. brand new one yesterday, Mm -hmm. the day before yesterday. Yeah. It's a whole different experience. And I I can't really tell you, I'm kind of going through it now, but it's a blast. It's just wonderful. You know, the whole house is, we turned it into a big playroom and there's toys (laughs) all over the place. We even have like swings hanging in the basement from the joists or the wood and the ceiling. So I think... It allows a different perspective, don't you? Children and grandchildren, at least for me with my kids, it allowed me to understand it's not just all about me. That's kind of a hard lesson for me to learn. Uh, (laughs) It was a good one to learn, but it's not all about me or all about the work. It's a bigger world out there, and the more responsibilities you have, the more you can rise to those responsibilities. Yeah, I think as soon as you start having children... You know, other folks that you're, you're responsible for, it can't be about yourself anymore. It automatically becomes about your children and what's best for them. And one of the neatest things ever was two of my children, Johnny and Mary, work here with us. Right. And I had some reservations at first. Not, you know, not, I mean, obviously they're, they're very smart and hardworking and all of that, but it was mostly for them because, you know, it's the whole situation of working with your dad. And I know I probably wouldn't wanted to have done that. Yeah. I love my dad to death, but we didn't always agree on things. And I did work with him at, at his stand at Soulard Market for years. What I was really concerned about is I didn't want to give them special treatment. You know, that, okay, they're my kids, so they get by with stuff. And, and in that respect, I think, at least with Johnny, I'm a little harder on him. Yeah. You know, and I push him a little bit harder. But that's just, that's how I was with him growing up, though. But, uh, and it's, he it's knew a, that getting into it, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, and Mary and I have, you know, we've always just gotten along great. I get along great with all my kids, but uh, I have a you know, different relationship, special relationship with each one. Johnny's been with us six years, I think, and Mary three. And it has been just unbelievably wonderful having them here and watching them learn mm-hmm. and develop. It's funny, when your kids are a certain age, they're not listening to you. They might be listening to you, but they're really not listening to you. And so they would never let you know right, that they, you were actually, right. they were actually and, listening. And I remember the, the first month or two that Johnny was working here and he'd come into my office and, you know, have a question about a case or a deposition or how to do this. And I would explain it to him. And then I was driving home and I called Margie and I said, you know, I had a really amazing experience today that I haven't had in years. I had Johnny in my office talking to me. And he was actually, for the first time in years, interested in what I had to say. <laughs> I never had that experience with him, you know, not, not since he was like, you know, eight or nine years old. Yeah. I'm kind of joking around about it, but it's, it is one of the things that I'm most thankful for. And it's just so neat having him here, being able to work with him. And do you think that having them here has kind of given you renewed interest in the firm or the practice or the cases? Has it added just an extra layer of enjoyment? My biggest thrill in doing what I do, and I mean this, is working with the younger lawyers here and watching them develop and grow and learn things. People can walk into my office anytime. It doesn't matter. I love getting interrupted. I love talking about what we do in the profession and how to do it better. And I've really enjoyed that. 
And, you know, doing it with your kids is a little extra special, but I always have enjoyed that. As you talk about being a mentor, Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, Amy, I was so lucky and blessed starting out practicing law. I got to work with some of the best attorneys in town, and they weren't just really good attorneys. They They were good people. Every one of them up and down the line would take the time out to answer my questions, show me how to do things, and just watching them going to trial with George Fitzsimmons or Paul Passanani and just going and watching them argue a motion. Every time we had a trial, you know, I'd go up there and watch. Right. It didn't matter. If I wasn't even involved in the case, if somebody in our office had a case going out, I'd be there for opening. I'd be there for Vordire. I'd watch it. And, you know, you learn so much. And then you get to talk to them afterwards. You know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And it's so much of what we do is from watching others who came before us. I tell the young lawyers here, the law clerks, my students at at the law school, you know, everybody's looking for the job usually that pays the most money or the most prestigious, whatever it is, the biggest firm. I would go to the firm where I was going to learn the most. And that place is a place where the people you're going to be working with actually care about your development. They care about you getting better and they're Mm -hmm. willing to take the time and show you how to do it. And I know that can be sometimes hard to know as you're starting out and looking for a job, but I do think you can get a sense of that from doing your research, looking at a firm, talking to as many people as you can. And I couldn't agree with you more. The theme so far is sort of thinking long-term, right? Thinking long-term in your relationships with other lawyers and with your friends and family, knowing that there's going to be a day when you need that person, And that goes for your colleagues at your law firm as well. And the sooner you can get someplace where you're going to get the mentoring and get to people that really care about your development, the better off you are. But I agree, it's really hard sometimes to know what that looks like as soon as you're starting out to school. And, and you know, I think you're just getting, you're starting out out of law school or a young lawyer. If the firm is big enough, talk to the youngest lawyers there. Yeah. And get their impression. But it really is a learning process. I'm learning things every day. I learned something today. You know, I actually, I saw something today I'd never seen before. Uh, believe it or not. What and was I, it? I was just, well, I was looking at our PNCs, the potential client emails that come in. As you know, I look at quite a few of those. I've looked at thousands, maybe tens of thousands <laughs> over the least. years. And I always pride myself saying I'm so experienced because there's nothing I haven't seen before. You sure. know, no matter what it is, what the issue, what happens at trial, I've seen it before, been there, done that. And I was reading this intake and where they're asked, you know, what is the claim about? What did the defendant do wrong? The statement was crimes against humanity. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that sounds serious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, it stopped me in my tracks. I thought, you know, I've never heard that before. Give me the wrong medicine, didn't stop at the stop sign, violated my civil rights. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, crimes against humanity. You know, I didn't take that class in law school. <laughs> but anyway, so you do. You learn. Every day you're learning. If you're open to yeah. it, I think you always should be. You know, it's the old saying, once you stop learning, you're dead. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago about the Soulard market, and I know that's part of your journey and part of your story. Tell us a little bit about the market and what it meant to you growing up. Well, I come from a family of of 10. I have seven sisters and two brothers, and I'm right in the middle. There's four girls, me, two more girls, and boy, boy, girl, girl, I think, whatever. I don't know if I got them all in there, but, and we're very, very close. We've always been close. Everybody's in town. I've got 46 nieces and nephews, and Growing up, my dad worked, his regular full-time job was for Missouri Pacific Railroad, and then he had a stand at Soulard 
farmer's market, and we sold produce, vegetables and fruit, and that was on Saturdays. And every morning, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, every Saturday morning, he'd go around the house flipping lights on, waking us all up. If you could pretty much walk and weren't in diapers, you're going with Dad to the market. And, of course, Mom was more than happy to comply with that Absolutely. because she could get things done on Saturday that she couldn't get done with a bunch of little kids running around. And so we would leave the house literally at 4.35 in the morning, get home at 6 or 7. Obviously, we were more trouble than we were worth when we were little, and my dad just wanted to have us around. But, you know, as we got bigger, you worked. And it was meeting people, waiting on customers, loading boxes, putting the produce out on the stand, packing it, unpacking it. I learned more doing that than I did in any school I've ever gone to. I learned about people. I learned about human nature. I learned about diversity. One of the most important lessons was good work ethic. It was hard work. And my dad, not jokingly, used to say, you know, if you eat, you work, mm-hmm. period. And, you know, another saying he had was, you know, he'd say, son, the worst sin of all is sitting on your ass, is yeah. what he would say. There's nothing we can't do if we work together and get it done. If you got a problem, the solution is roll up your sleeves deal with it as best you can, and move on to the next thing. He taught me to be decisive, to work hard, but most important, he taught me how to treat other people. It wasn't by telling me. I watched it day in and day out down there. We had plenty. We had everything that we needed, but we didn't have any extra money or things like that. But I would see my dad all the time. Somebody would come down to the stand, and there were a lot of families who, you know, were poor, and somebody that week didn't have money or enough money to pay for what they were buying. Without hesitation, my dad would give it to him and say, no problem, go take it. People would come down from homeless shelters around downtown, and my dad would give them boxes of produce all the time. And I guarantee you, it wasn't extra, it wasn't surplus. You know, there were days, I'm certain, when he didn't even make money, and he still was there giving that stuff away. How did he get started at the Soulard Market? Well, Why did he, he always want to do so it? So he, he came to St. Louis when he was 12 years old in 1947 with my aunt, my uncle, and my grandparents. They came from Lebanon, the country of Lebanon. They grew up in a little town called Hatshit up in the mountains near Tripoli. And they came here. None of them could speak English. They had family here. And they moved in right near downtown, near 10th Street or so. It's where Ross and Perina oh, building wow. is. And they lived there. And one of the first jobs they were able to get was a job at Soulard Market. And it was within walking distance from their house. And so my dad really started working down there shortly after he got here, you know, after school, on the weekends. And he started when he was 12 or 13 years old. And then when he got, I guess after he got married or so, he he always did work down there on a Saturday for somebody else. And then at one point, it was probably even before I was born, he got his own stand. Mm -hmm. And he had it, uh, you know, for the next 60 years, 70 years. Do you think that that experience, watching your father and being with all your siblings and working hard, is part of what drives you today? It is. And I, I just, this is something else I got a smile on my face that everybody can't see, but it was some award I got from some, I don't know who it was for. It was the Bar Association or Legal Services or something. And it was an award for, you know, helping out, doing charitable stuff. You know, I was a grown man. Obviously, I was probably, you know, 40 years old. And But you still like bragging to your dad. And I would call him almost every day on the ride home from work just to, to talk to him, see how he's doing. And I said, hey, Dad, you know what? Just I kind of mentioned it. I didn't want to act like I was bragging. But I said, you know, I got this award. And he said, oh, yeah, that's nice. He said, what, what's it for? And I told him. And he said, well, that's nice. But you don't need to get an award for doing what you're supposed to do. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly <laughs> what he said. So, but again, you asked me what I learned. It wasn't just learn. It was like etched into our brains. You work, you do what you need to do, you answer the bell, 
the main thing I think I got from both of my parents, from my mom and dad, was there was nothing I couldn't do, period. Whatever you work toward, put your mind toward, you will get just absolute 100% confidence. It was, it was just expected. My dad didn't go to college. My mom didn't go to college. All 10 of us have not just college but advanced degrees in something or other. Three of us are attorneys, a CPA, a C- CFO. My sisters especially, they did all of that at a time when that was you know, that wasn't the norm. Right. And they were all, as you know, in, in professions that were dominated by men. And so I have, a, I think, a, a unique perspective of women in that regard. I mean, I grew up with seven sisters, and they're all very, very smart and independent and strong personalities. And uh, we all worked hard and helped each other out. And what I've always loved about that part of your story is that your parents did not treat your sisters differently than the boys, did not put up any barriers to their education and knew that education was a great equalizer. And I've always loved that story because that was unique, as you said. And I grew up with a very much father saying, get out there and do it. There was no difference. My brother and I both expected to work hard, be educated and do something do something with our lives. I think the best that we can do with that is to make sure we treat our children the same way. And I have two boys, so it's a little bit harder, but I have nieces, and that's the attitude I have. You can't tell me you can't do it. I'm never going to tell you you can't do it. No, that get out there and do it. It it is, and that was the lesson that was, like, drilled into us from as young as I can remember. I think almost all of my success, everything I've been able to do to the extent it's deemed successful is a result of how I was brought up, you know, my parents, my mom and my dad. Mm -hmm. And you know what, Amy, that's a matter of luck. It just really is. I was a lucky person because of when I was born and who my parents were. It gave me such a great feeling of self-worth and self-esteem at a very young age to actually be going to work and spending a full day, 10, 12 hours, assisting in the support of our family. Could you imagine that? Mm -mm. And we needed to do it. I mean, that's how we survived. That's what we did. But the sense of yourself and and self-esteem. Especially at a young age. Yeah, at a young age. Right, right. And not to mention the business sense. You know, I mean, that was part of it too. You know, I, I would go down with my father to the wholesale market, Produce Row, and we did that on Friday mornings for 10, 15 years. Every day I'd go down there with him. And when I started driving, I would actually drop him off at work downtown and then I would take our old, you know, beat up truck to school and he'd catch the bus home. But going down there at, at 14, 15, 16 years old and actually doing the buying, being able to negotiate with grown men who wholesalers who are selling things. And my dad pushed me. He would have me do it. He'd watch me make a mistake and not say anything mm. because he would let me do it. I was living in the real world at a very early age. Right. And uh, I think I got a big head start on a lot of other people that I know that I grew up with. I want to switch gears just a bit. Tell us about a time that you felt powerful and why. Boy, <laughs> you know, I don't know, Amy. I can't think of, I know a lot of times I didn't feel real powerful. Well, that's my next question. <laughs> okay. Tell us a time you, know, you felt yeah. powerless. I can remember, you know, a handful of cases. And I felt absolutely overwhelmed with them, just completely overwhelmed. I can remember one case in particular where, I was a young lawyer. I'd been out four or five years, and there were literally like eight, nine defendants, and they were all major players, automotive companies and oil companies. And I had probably 15, 20 lawyers on the other side of the case and pretty much no help. I had me and a secretary, 
and they were intentionally trying to bury me. Right. And I just would dig in and dig in. The case went on for about two years, and it was a ton of time and a ton of stress, and I just wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up the further. They'd push, and I would just push harder. And there were points in that case with, you know, rulings with the judge. I mean, I'd go up to argue a motion, and, and all 15 lawyers would be taking the opposite position of me, and they were all 20, 30 years older than me and, and better known in front of the judge. And that's one of the cases I got through and got a really, really good result in that case, a surprising result, but it was very, very good. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were more successful than I ever thought I would be on it, and it resulted in some, some industry changes. It was an important case, and it was a neat case for me to work on. And the answer to your question of, of when did I feel the most helpless, powerless, and the most powerful, it's the same case. Mm. In the beginning of it and, and a dozen or more times through the course of it, I felt like not giving up, but I felt like even doing my best, I wasn't going to get it done. Okay, And I just felt at times I wasn't able to do it, no matter how hard I worked. And I stuck with it, and I figured it, and I was innovative, tried to figure out, well, if I can't do this, and I can do this. At the end of that case, I thought there's not a case in this world that I can't handle and, and win. Yeah. And it gave me so much confidence doing it all myself, getting through it. And I will tell you, that is the time when my confidence level went through the roof practicing law. I don't believe I was 35 years old. I might have been in my early 30s, maybe 31, 32 years old. And that case had every substantive issue you could think of, every procedural issue. It had gone up the uh, Court of Appeals on writs three or four times had every type of personality in terms of defense attorney on the other side. I couldn't conceive of a tougher case. Now, if that case came in today, guess what? I have 15 people here (laughs) who can help me with it. You know, the briefing. So, you know, part of it was not having enough personnel or help. But the other part of it, too, was I remember thinking, I wish I had some light or something on my desk that just, is it green or red? Is this the right thing to do or not? Because you need to make, as you know, you need to make decisions and you live with them. I will tell you the worst thing in the world is being so careful that you're paralyzed. Right. You know, you got to take a risk. You got to make a decision. It's the old saying, make a decision and, and live with it. But I will tell you that particular case, I felt powerless at times during the course of that case, felt hopeless. The situation seemed hopeless. And by the time it was over, I was like the top of the mountain. Honestly, I, I feel confidence even today in that case. Heck you yeah. know, I, I did it by myself. And, you know, now with all the great lawyers here and the staff and everything else, it's easy. So that's what I remember. I love it that it was the same case. Because I think a lot of us can identify with that. The lowest of the low and the highest of the high can occur in the same case, which is one of the things I love about practicing law. And in that moment, when you were feeling without a lot of power or powerless or overwhelmed, I know what drove you. And it was, number one, who you were. By God, no one was going to tell me I can't do this. But also for the client. You had committed yourself to doing the job for the client. And I know how important that is to you as well. And you weren't about to let that client down. Not at all. Absolutely. And you've taken that with you throughout your entire career. So how do you teach younger lawyers the importance of the commitment that we make to our clients? Because so much of what we talk about is our careers, our careers, our reputation, being a good lawyer. But at the heart of it is committing yourself to doing the best job you can do for your clients. I think it's a great motivator because 
I don't care how much money you're making. If you're doing this for the money, you're in the wrong profession. Yeah. It's way too hard. It takes too much from you. You can go find something else that's easier and a lot less work and make more money. And I mean that. Doing what we do has to be, and it is, more than just about the money or getting a paycheck. Or, or winning for you know, winning's sake. Winning for winning's sake. And I think that motivation comes not just for me, but for others through representing somebody who their entire life, what's going to happen to them for the next 40 or 30 years is in your hands, it's on your shoulders, and boy, that puts things in a whole different light. Mm -hmm. And if it were me, maybe I'd give up. <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> I'd say, oh, the hell with this. You know, this is getting crazy. Yeah. But you've had the same clients, Amy, and you're representing a three- or four-year-old child who has major, major medical complications, is going to have a tough road ahead, and whether that child gets the right care or not, you know, it depends on the decisions you make. It depends on how hard you work. It right. depends on your skill, your training. And that's the thing that it motivates me, but it also, you know, energizes me. And that's a good example of why passion and concern for others really drives what we do. It's really the foundation. I would go as far as saying it motivates every person here from top to bottom. I agree. And there's so many things that come at us every single day that it is sometimes easy to lose sight of the overall reason why we're doing this. What kind of things do you do to make sure that you are motivated every day? Well, you know, you make a great point. We are in a profession that hands down is one of the most competitive environments that exist, period. It's not just our abilities, but we have skilled teams of lawyers on the other side. We're outnumbered in almost all of our cases. We're outspent in almost all of our cases. And their job is to derail us, to stop us, you need to really be thinking. You need to be at the top of your game. You really can't have an off day or a bad day. You need to answer the bell. But here's the difference. It sounds a lot like some professional athletes. The big difference between professional athletes and what we do is professional athletes are required to be at the very, very top of their game for four or five years. Right. The great ones, maybe eight or nine years, ten years. We're asked to be at the top of our game and work day in and day out in this ultra-competitive environment for a career, you know, for decades this is my fourth decade. You know, am I starting my fourth decade? Yeah, I think I did start my fourth decade, 36 <laughs> years. But that's really the difference. And you don't realize sometimes the toll it takes emotionally and physically. And I think one of the best things you can do starting out as a, as a young lawyer is take care of your physical body. Get exercise. If you like jogging, the elliptical, whatever it is, play basketball. What we do is physically draining and you really need to keep yourself in good physical shape. And any, anybody that, that's listening that exercises on a regular basis you know, will know that you do it in large part for the mental benefits, the emotional benefits. I've done different things throughout my life. When my kids were little, we'd play basketball. And I'd play basketball. I started that in law school with a dozen or so of my law school classmates. And even after we graduated, we had you know, one night where we'd play basketball. I'd, I'd play a couple nights a week. I had a hoop up at the house. I would play with my kids and the neighborhood kids after work. You know, we turned the light on outside, the floodlight, and play. You know, as, as the kids got older and I got older, I couldn't play with them anymore because <laughs> I would get injured. So I think when my boys, Johnny especially, when, when they got to be about, you know, 15, 16, 17, yeah, they I was like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I don't, I don't need to do this anymore. I got to get up tomorrow morning. And so I changed what I did. I started running a little bit. Now I do the elliptical, but it's rare that I don't miss a day getting 45 minutes to an hour of some type of exercise. It's really, really helpful. The other thing, too, is 
you know, get away from what you're doing. Take some vacations. And when I mean vacations, I don't mean going on a vacation and being on your phone. I started this practice before there was any kind of iPhones. Yeah. When you went on vacation, whether you liked it or not, you were cut off from the office. Right. I remember calling the office from a vacation on a payphone. You know, I'm sitting outside on the street. I don't know where I was at Greece or somewhere, and I'm trying to get back to the office on a payphone with the country code. But while I didn't have contact with the office, guess what? When I got back, it was still here. Right. You know, it didn't burn down. Nobody left. You know, nobody was killed. Those vacations were real vacations. And now we're so tempted to, you know, wherever we go, we're enslaved. We're just connected to that phone. I mean, hundreds of emails and, and texts and all this other stuff. You get, you know, in this habit of as soon as it beeps, you're looking at it. I've gotten into the practice of I will take mostly Sundays. And I can do this because Margie has her phone on all the time. If there's a family emergency, she'll yeah. let me know. Yeah. But I shut it off. Yeah. You know, I'll turn that phone off on a Sunday and just park it. It's like having a vacation day, but you really do need to physically, mentally, and emotionally get away from it now and then and spend some time doing something else. Yeah. When you think about your legacy, okay, so... I hesitate to ask this question because I don't want you to feel like I think it's time for you to retire. Am I that old? (laughs) (laughs) So I I don't. I would say, as far as legacy, I haven't thought about it and I'm still working on it. How's that? (laughs) But it's interesting because I'm thinking about our listeners, and I do hope that we have a wide range of listeners, young and older or more experienced. And this is something you and I've talked about at my prompting, which is I'm already thinking about retirement. I think it's healthy to think about retirement. Um, And so instead of saying, hey, what do you think about retirement? I thought it'd be more clever to say, hey, what do you think your legacy is going to be? I would just tell you this. (laughs) We're just now pulling out of this pandemic. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. And Margie has said more than once, you know, what we talked about, you know, the the pandemic and what effect it's had, what we learned from it. She said, the one thing I learned about this pandemic is my husband is not going to retire anytime (laughs) soon. And, and, she's and she's right. Okay with right? It? She's, she's okay with it because I was driving her nuts. So I think it's all about at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing, it's about the effect you've had on other people's lives who you've touched. That's it. Yeah. That's the bottom line. I don't care if you're a, an electrician or a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer. I'm getting kind of philosophical here, but you know, we're all going to leave this world, this yeah. earth, far as I know, ain't none of us taking anything with us. Right. You're borrowing it while you're here. But I think the one permanent thing that we can leave and we do leave is the effect that we have had on others. And I think about that a lot. My experience, my personal experience is when I do good things, I feel good. When I do bad things, I feel bad. Imagine. Right. In a general sense, you know, that's a good religion to adhere to. You know, when you do good things, you generally feel good. And when I do good things, I feel good. I feel really good about it. The perfect example, there are attorneys here who I taught in law school before they were attorneys. Yeah. And they're entering their 10th, 11th, 12th year of practice. And I watched them in law school, not knowing what the hell they were doing, fumbling around, <laughs> and you know, almost comical. And now I see them, and they're some of the top trial lawyers in St. Louis in a very, very short period of time. What happens is I'll go to trial with them, as you know, and it's a case that I didn't work up, but I'm going to help them try it. And I'll sit at home with a stack of depositions and I'll start reading it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that gives you a better idea of the intellect, skill, quality of an attorney reading a depot that they took. Just yeah. read the depot. And I will laugh out loud sometimes because they're just so good at what they do. 
and just a tip for everybody, if you have an opportunity to sit and listen to your opponent question a witness, whether it's a fact witness or your expert or your client, listen carefully because their case is unfolding in Mm -hmm. front of you. And boy, if you're not listening, if you're on that phone or trying to return text or whatever, you are missing out. That's all you need to do is just listen. Keep your ears open and listen to where they're going with their questions. And you'll know exactly where they're going, what their case is about. That does make me think about your podcast and all of the time that you've shared episodes on trial tips just like that or litigation skills just like that. Are you enjoying it? You know, I love it. And I think we're going to get to up to about six listeners now, finally. (laughs) (laughs) I say that that. because the ladies are killing us. They're killing us. There's more of us. You know what? You guys have a great, great podcast and people are enjoying it. I actually, out of the office, when I run into attorneys, and it's not just the women attorneys, you know, the, the men, the women will talk about, hey, your podcast, your podcast. And I'll smile and go, oh, wow, that's great. And then the further no. in the conversation, I realize it's not my podcast. They're talking about Amy and everybody's, the, the ladies' podcast. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, <laughs> sure, okay. you can listen and to then, that one, too. Right, and then I'll say, well, I have one. And they'll go, you do? Well, what's it, what's it called? No, that's so not true. It is, it is. It's happened, Amy. It's happened. But I'm hey, look, we're working real hard to try and catch up. And I think my uh, appearance here may help that a little bit. I mean, right? I'm just trying to listeners. help a guy right, out. What right. can I say? Right. <laughs> Well, I really have enjoyed our 20 years of practice together. You and I have spent many, 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 many hours over the years talking about life and work, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I appreciate taking some time today to talk to me and give some stories and some advice for our listeners about having a very long and successful career. So thank you for that. Amy, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Take care, everybody. And thank you again for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We can be found at heelsinthecourtroom.law for any comments or questions. We'd love to hear from you. Please note that both this podcast and our other podcasts, The Jury is Out, both drop on Wednesdays, and we'll see you next time. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today 